0: So welcome everybody. Uh, my name is Brian Hurley. I work with a group called Lean Portland, and we're a volunteer group that works with uh, local nonprofits to teach them lean and Six Sigma principles and concepts. And we've been working probably pretty uh, um, pretty aggressively, I guess, at that for the last couple of years now. And so. Um, I read across Michael's book uh, a couple years back, and um, I thought that would be a good topic for us to share and talk about. Um, and I'd also like to talk uh, introduce Jason here
1: with uh, PSU, who's also helped us get this uh, organized. Hi, everyone. I'm Jason Green. I'm the director of Impact Entrepreneurs in PSU's School of Business. We're a set of social innovation and social entrepreneurship programs and events for both students and community members. One of the programs I manage and teach in is our Certificate of Social Innovation. Undergraduate students, graduate students, and community members can take it to design and launch a new social venture, a nonprofit, a social enterprise, a government program. And we've launched organizations such as the Basic Bread Foundation, Next Garden, Construct Foundation, and a whole set of others. So I teach the Lean Startup methodology, and this book is a great resource for our students, and we'll be using this webinar uh, as a recording in our courses as well. Hello. Great.
0: Well, I'll hand it off, How are you doing? uh, Michael, and um, you want to introduce yourself and then share some of your insights about your book. That'd be great.
2: Thank you. And and thanks, everybody. Really glad to have a chance to speak with everybody. Um, So I am Michael Glopka. I'm the author of Lean Startups for, for Social Change. I've been involved in social change work since a pretty young age and have, you know, really kind of came to realize when I went into the for-profit world about 15, 20 years, 15 years ago now um, to do clean tech software startups, I uh, started realizing that I had been doing startups in the social change world my whole life. Um, my typical tenure on work I've done has been sort of five to seven years, um, you know, um, it involves probably the, um one of the things i did was i helped i ran the organization that wrote the first major climate bill in california ab32 the global warming solutions act uh before that most of my work's been in environmental in the environmental field i introduced water conservation and water conservation pricing in new york city's department of environmental protection uh helped start the environmental one of the first the first environmental policy program at Columbia University. So I've been doing a variety of startups most of my life. I did the first um, major work academic work in the environmental justice field. So when I got into real startups, software startups, business startups, I recognized kind of um, some that this was a really major part of my life and the way I've been working a lot already. And was really interested in how this sector, the software sector in particular, and the Tech innovation sector had been moving so fast, and found that there was this technique called the lean startup that we in the social change world weren't familiar with. Uh, so when I left uh, startups, I did three companies um, over that, those 12 to 14 years, and then I uh, was again, got a uh, fellowship from the Packard Foundation to write this book, um, which I really had to write. I had to get it out. Um, just too many of my friends who were super smart and super innovative didn't know what's going on in the in this innovation world. Um, and how important this was. Uh, and so I wrote the book and and, and have been consulting and teaching and, and leading workshops uh, ever since. Um, so that's kind of my story. Um, I am gonna count on Brian to lead the Q&A process. I probably have to get off the call uh, for the webinar, unfortunately, around 12.45. My presentation will probably be about 20, 25 minutes. Um, I am not monitoring the chat. Um, so Brian, if something uh, comes up urgently, please um, uh, please just interrupt and ask a good question if it comes up. I would ask the people maybe text, chat Brian questions, and I'll take a pause every couple of minutes to see if, are there any questions, and have Brian moderate that. Sounds great. So that, great. I, can, uh, so that I, don't, I can focus on what I'm talking to you all about. All right?
0: Great.
2: All right, and you can hear me OK? The sound is good? Yep. All right, terrific, well thanks. So, you know, I, I titled this talk Experimenting Our Way to Meaningful Change. I want to start by telling a story, a story, about um, the election uh, in 2016. Uh, I have a couple different ways I start this presentation. One is more casual, this one I thought for a webinar, let's make it a little more exciting and relevant. Uh, there's a country to win, a presidential election, um, and, um, You can imagine, let's say, that you're Russia and you're thinking about how do we intervene in a way that's going to make that country more friendly to our government um, or to our policies. Um, And you start small. You identify the kinds of people that you may want to influence to make a difference. Uh, You look in states like Florida, Michigan, Pennsylvania, Wisconsin. You use Facebook. See that women uh, 40 to 65, there's about 35 million women you could reach on Facebook uh, um, in that audience. Narrow it a bit more, let's just go for those who support Barack Obama um, or Hillary Clinton. Um, that cuts us to 5.2 million people. And then, you know, let's actually get really specific and look at those who might be blue collar workers, employee, you know, um, or labor union members. Um, and that's 28,000 people. And that's like a segment, hey, what can we do to maybe affect the votes of 28,000 African-American women who are interested in the trade unions in four key states. So you kind of can narrow it down and say, hey, let's run some experiments and see what goes on with different populations that are key. Obviously, you get sent some polling data by the campaign chair, which is what happened. uh, So you can further target the kinds of people that you might want to move. And you say to yourself, well, let's see if we can selectively mobilize voters in four key states let's make sure we win the purple state of florida without that we can't do anything and let's see if we can breach the blue wall Wisconsin, michigan pennsylvania uh, of labor labor support for democrat candidates Um, so you say well let's use facebook it's a simple tool we have access to it let's see if we can do it let's start running some test ads these are all ads that were discovered by the fbi and other intelligence agencies to have been planted by russia in our on facebook for key populations you might start with mobilization who can you get to out to vote because they're scared about gun violence or other types of violence they might maybe even feel like they're being targeted as white folks for being racist or that they are on the on that they are um being sacrificed to a more diverse diversity oriented agenda whatever the motivation um and maybe they're very scared about Immigration, right? These are women, um, maybe African American women, union affiliated, um, and they're, you know, they're concerned. Let's say about Dora the Explorer crossing the border. Um, you can see some of these ads were, you know, pretty cute, pretty interesting. They look pretty American to me, but they were all Russian generated. Another potential solution is to um, suppress vote. What's a, what are some of the kind of messages that might help with voter suppression? Blacktivist was an organization also formed by the, by the Russians, um, and they put out messages like this, black people should wake up as soon as possible. Um, they reminded us, I always joke with my friends, my African American friends, did you really remember that Hillary said Super Predator, or did the Russians remind you, right? They were running these kinds of ads so that we could all be irritated at things that Hillary Clinton as an experienced politician with a long track record had done in her past. Biden obviously also participated to be more current in this kind of rhetoric to some extent. So um, the key really here was that um, they conducted a bunch of incremental experiments, right? They figured out, uh, and these graphics are from um, um, uh, one of the FBI's reports on this, they did targeted data collection, figured out who the customers were, who the people that they wanted to reach were, they stole some data. They took over some accounts, but they mostly, you know, just dug around Facebook to try to identify populations. They iterated uh, stories. They ran different ads, saw the effectiveness, created fake accounts, ran a bunch of tests with different personas, and finally they figured out a way to amplify the message, including with fake accounts. They actually occasionally had real meetups that were with people they paid to show up in places to gather people. Um, I think one of the things that was most alarming to the intelligence community was they, the president was part and remains part of this sort of false amplification system. They recruited some pretty powerful uh, ways to get, keep and grow the people they were trying to influence. Um, and you know, they, um, they, they were going after these four states. Turns out they spent about $100,000. They spent, they spent more money on some other stuff, but on Facebook they spent about $100,000, reached about 126 million people um with that hundred thousand dollars um trump won um and the margin of votes in these states were very small it was a total of about in the blue in the blue states in the blue wall states in particular just over one hundred thousand votes made the difference in trump's victory there um and so basically they spent a hundred thousand dollars to get 126 million impressions if you work, run the math on that and assume that, that they're basically spending about um, uh eight, ten thousandths of a cent per person they reached. Um and if you just attribute that spend to the votes that they influenced, assuming some of those people were influenced, uh, and this was the let's assume this is the only way they reached people, although there were others, that's a pretty good price. They got about they paid about 70 cents per critical vote swung in Trump's direction. And um they got it. They won they Trump won the election um, and uh and the rest is history. So that's an example of a lean um, effort to take over a country, basically, um, and you can and this presentation will talk about some of the methods and thinking that lie underneath that approach. Um, so um, let let me talk about why it's critical to think about the lean change, and when I work in the social sector in particular, it's really important to explain to groups why. This is not just a fad, right? It's not just a temporary thing. The election is a great example of how important it can be. The thing that underlies really the power of this method more than anything else is that it's possible faster than ever before to measure the impact of an action. So let's just take environmental monitoring, for example. It used to be that if you wanted to figure out what was going on in a stream up in the Rockies, you had to trek up there every six weeks and pick up samples from your device. No longer the case, there's remote, Transmission by cell towers now, and you can continuously monitor almost any environment on the planet remotely either with cell phone signals or other GPS or Satellite signals that allow you to transmit data um, at high resolution almost continuously from anywhere um, Friendship has changed um, it used to be that you have to meet somebody go for a walk hold their hand at sunset And now you can use Facebook and really measure what your traction is with people that you know across a broad array of things. People are becoming friends faster than ever before, right? I'm sure some of you have had the experience uh, of running into somebody in an airport that you had never seen before but knew on Facebook. As a matter of fact, Brian and I, oddly enough, were on a plane to Trinidad, never having met before in person, on a plane to Trinidad together um, in December. Um, And he recognized me, and. The rest, you know, we'd already been talking, obviously, but, you know, we went from really close virtual knowledge of each other to actual physical knowledge of each other just because there's a platform that uh, let us recognize each other faster than ever before. Even traditional methods of outreach are working faster than ever before. Let's say you have a PTA meeting and you called a meeting uh, and you sent out a flyer. In the old days, 20, 30 years ago, you sent out a flyer, see what happened in the next meeting, and see how effective whatever you were trying to do was. But today, when people leave that meeting, you have their email address, you have their cell phone number, you might have their Instagram or or Twitter handles. Uh, and if you design that meeting right, you can figure out in two or three days after the meeting whether people have been mobilized appropriately. Uh, let's say the PTA meeting decides that it's time to go to the city council and push for a 50% budget increase, um, and everybody commits to uh, developing a postcard campaign for their church um, by the next meeting. Well you can actually text, email them or text them two or three days later and see how they're doing and get instant feedback on whether they've taken those actions in ways that 20 or 30 years ago you would have had to wait quite a while to find out if the people had actually stuck to their word. Um, And if they don't, you can shift your strategy and try something else. So that's really what underlies all of this, is this recognition that feedback loops are getting shorter everywhere. And as anyone who's done any biology work or or any kind of um, thinking about the real world, feedback loops are a really critical part of how the planet and people work, and they are getting shorter every day. And that's really what underlies a lot of what I'm going to talk about for the rest of this talk. So with that, I want to sort of just say, I want to stop for a second and ask if there are any questions that have come up yet.
0: Nothing yet, but if you have a question, feel free to type them into the chat area, and, and I'll get to them at the next session. Thanks.
2: Okay, and we're going now into the substance of the of the method now. So really what we're doing here is replacing the old model of social change. In the software world, it's called waterfall, which is to say there's a, a, a sort of fixed sequence of events that leads to we- to how you design a program, right? You have an idea for a product or a service or a movement. You build coalition, buy-in, consensus. You write a plan. You might even start acting on your own. Funding proposal, you wait for some funding. You execute the plan, you measure impact, you evaluate impact, God willing. And if the impact isn't as good as you'd like, maybe you end the program, but a lot of times you just go back, if there, whether the impact, sometimes you don't even measure the impact, you say well this is working, we have a coalition, let's get some more money and keep going. And this is a real sequence, it takes a long time. You know, you can imagine, I'm sure many of you have been involved in social change work where it takes two or three years to get off the ground because you have to talk to so many people and build so much consensus. Um, and really the Lean Startup is ma- aimed in the private sector, the software used to be built this way as well, as in the public sector uh, and in social, the social sector, at really throwing this model out and saying, forget it. And the main reason we want to do that is because at the end of the day, no idea ever really survives first contact with your target. No matter how great your coalition, no matter how great your idea, whenever you go out in the real world to try to make it happen, it's never quite the same as it was in your meetings or in your private thoughts and musings. There is always a difference between what happens in the real world and what your plan was. So the idea is how do we close that gap? How do we find that difference and adjust more and more quickly? And lean change has what I call, has three principles and one underlying process productive failure or what in the private sector is often called fail fast agile development as a methodology and an ongoing focus on efficiency trying to do things as as quickly and as, and, and as for as low a price as possible and there's a process underlying all of it called customer development um, I'm, I use that I keep that word in the work I do from the private sector because it's a really customer development is increasingly a very very technical field with lots of types of customer development and ways to do it. And I want when people leave my workshops to be able to go find the tools that are out there um, that are very diverse. And to use the word customer development helps people go find you know, the thousands, literally thousands of tools and methods and articles and, and instruction that's out there for how to do this process. And we'll get into some more of that in a bit. So um, let me give you a, a real world example of this. There was a 100,000 Homes campaign that ran for 24 mo- uh, about 30 months between 2011 and 2014. Uh, and you can contra- and what they basically did was they tried to turn homelessness work on its head. Believe it or not, most work on homelessness focused on temporary shelter, getting people off streets. Um, and what 100,000 Homes did was they said, how about if we get homeless people homes? Uh, and in about 40 communities around the country, different communities experimented ways, to- with ways to permanently solve the challenge that homeless people were facing. Uh, and you can see the dark blue success rate that they had compared in an immediate post-recession period uh, where you know, homelessness was going way up, unsheltered homeless individuals in these 40 cities went up by 38% between 2011 and 2014 due to um, ter- economic turmoil, turmoil in the housing market. And you can see in the communities that focused on this that in fact they were able to drop homelessness in all those communities compared to, um, compared to control groups that they used. Um, that campaign has now matured into uh, Operation Zero, which is a nationwide campaign to try to reduce homelessness to zero in some key communities. Um, so the first, the first real principle, of productive failure, is, is challenging for us in the social sector. It's challenging for everybody. It's the hardest part and the thing you have to train yourself to think about differently when you're working on these kinds of issues. Um, failure is often not an option. In the private sector, you invest some, somebody invests some money, you try an idea that fails, that's called risk. Investors lose their money all the time for ideas that don't work. On the other hand, if you have to do something like educate low-income communities or um, get homeless people into homes so they can live longer and more prosperously, um, you really can't fail. These are problems that are not gonna go away, that will continue to be pressing. Most social problems are. And so the fact that we have this paradox of wanting to fail fast, of wanting to learn, of wanting to experiment quickly um, so that we can fail quickly, really so that we can look for the next level of success more quickly as well. So um, it's one of the reasons it's really important to fail more quickly is I think there's at least two main reasons. One is... Um, Most social change work has limited social and political capital accessible to it. Um, They don't really, you know, we don't have endless resources. We can't be Uber or Lyft. We bring tens of billions of dollars to conquer a market. And eventually you wear out um, particularly the social and political capital, the goodwill, that team, that coalition, will eventually fall apart if you aren't successful. People will find better ways to spend their time. And then the sources of money have different pressures as well. Is something what I call donor regrets or moral opportunity costs, right? When you run a social change program and it fails, um, it might have been bold and innovative, but your donors say, God, I know I could have given that money to a soup kitchen and people would have definitely had food, right? And so there's this way in which you get a little extra, little extra bitterness, a little extra regret when a social change project fails. So the ability to fail quickly saves those, reduces that friction and keeps the opening, the opportunity to solve really hard problems Broader if you can move more quickly through your failures. And finally, um, you know, a key part of failing is to learn from your failure, to actually document and say, this is what we know, and if you do that rigorously, and we as a community in the social change sector start doing that rigorously, we can, like in the private sector, start sharing wisdom about things that we've actually in a measured and quantitative way tried and had fail, so that we don't have to continuously reinvent the wheel and can move towards more and more optimal solutions more and more quickly over time. I'll take another deep breath here. I don't see any new questions. Are there any? Okay. Okay. So here's, you know, I put at the end of this a pretty provocative example of why, you know, where failure is not an option, right? Can we really, as the United States, afford to fail in Afghanistan? Just think of the ways we are skewered on that question right now. A lot of people would say that the Soviet Union's failure in Afghanistan led to its collapse. Um, uh, Can we afford to fail? Have we failed? Do we have social and political capital left to go fix Afghanistan um, or would we have been better off running a more experimental uh, intervention where we tried different things and didn't wear people out quite as much as we have now because of the death toll and the mayhem that that our, our traditional waterfall plans have led to in that in that campaign so um uh, basically, um, the second of principle of lean change is agile development using agile techniques which is to say represented by this chart build measure learn queue up what you 're trying to learn run through iterative cycles quickly um, you know put a product out put an effort out put a solution out in the world measure how it works study it and change it until it 's really working the way you want it to work uh, and is growing in the kinds of ways you need it to grow um, and let me show you a little bit of a conceptual idea of why that's so important. In a traditional um, process of, of innovation, we think we make something, maybe we release it to the world, we make it a second time, release it again, um, and we try to mature a product um, you know, just kind of by releasing newer and better versions all the time, right? Um, you know, we might have um, three soup kitchens in a city that a church is trying to open, and they open one, and then they open the second, and they open the third, but maybe they don't really know whether hunger is actually being reduced yet because they haven't measured it. Um, contrast it with an Agile process, and so the area under the curve there is you can think of it's time on the horizontal axis and risk on the vertical axis. Everything under that curve is what you'd call unvalidated effort. It's work that you've done, but you're not sure that it's had an impact. If You contrast with that with a smaller incremental approach using Agile techniques, you reduce those loops um, so that you eventually have just a series of small products, minimum viable products, efforts, agile efforts, um, to test key components of ideas so that you grow the product with much lower risk, right? The area below the curve in each of those orange triangles is a lot smaller than the one under the blue line. Um, And the idea is to kind of just keep iterating and confirming what you need to know or changing what you're doing until you have a confirmed impact Um, and moving more, more in smaller agile steps But moving more quickly with less overall risk, because less is a because there's a lot less that you don't know as you move further and further out into the implementation curve. Um, And so you can think from an agile perspective of 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 that of that wiggle curve as as what's called in in agile a backlog, right? A series of a sequence of hypotheses. Do people have this problem? Do people want to solve this problem? Does our idea solve the problem? Do people want this solution? will people pay for this solution, how much will people pay for this solution, et cetera. So you really wanna break your problems down into little pieces that can be tested. Um, so let me give you an example of just, there, and there are many forms of testing that I'll cover in a minute, um, many dimensions to the testing that I'll cover in a minute, but um, it all starts really with what we call the value hypothesis. What's the solution, what's the problem, and what's the solution you're proposing to that problem? And the value hypothesis has two components, which is, what it, do we know the problem? Like, do we actually know what the problem is? And second is, do we know what the solution is? Um, and that's called the value hypothesis. Um, you can think of three examples I talk about. Uh, I, I'm give, I give here: goal, stop global warming; goal, end mortal racism, aka lynching; goal, end homelessness. Right. And these are sort of initial value hypotheses. The hypothesis is, hey, we think we can get states to cut emissions of greenhouse gases, and you can think of a minimum viable product of that as being the Ob- Obama's Clean Power Plan. It's a great idea, it doesn't solve global warming, but it's a, you know. but one of the problems is that we can't figure out a way to get Congress to pass legislation, so maybe we can do it in the states, right? In the other, in the case of ending mortal racism, the one hypothesis is: Hey, maybe this light of day, media exposure can slow the rate of police murders. Black Lives Matter tested that hypothesis. Ending homelessness, I discussed the 100,000 Homes campaign already. Um, There's a second piece to the value hypothesis, which is uh, called—excuse me—the second piece to your solution set, which is called the growth hypothesis. And this is sort of one of the really. Important and kind of, um, sort of when you get more experience in this work, turns out to really be the very, very powerful element of the lean startup and the and lean change, which is that you want to not just know that you have a solution, you want to understand whether that solution can be big enough to solve the problem. Um, and that doesn't mean you have to solve the whole problem, but it does mean that you want to be able to measure whether the investment you're putting in in social, political, financial capital is appropriate to how big your idea could ever be. And what's beautiful about this, pro- this hypothesis and data-driven process is that you can measure whether there's a snowball's chance in hell you'll ever actually achieve the, the scale that you need to with the solution you've thought of. Back to those three goals, stopping global warming for the United States, the growth hypothesis is Congress passes climate legislation, right? If we have federal climate legislation we would be a long way down the road towards solving the global warming problem from the U.S.'s perspective. Um, The necessary scale we know is roughly, we have to swing about 15 senators, about 40 congresspeople's votes. Um, Ending mortal racism. Black Lives Matter isn't enough, right? Exposure's not enough, we wanna actually end disproportionate violence. We'd like black people to not be killed at a higher rate than white people. What 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 scale that is? It Colin Kaepernick is it NFL football players now moving from you know isolated one solution. Let's put videos up right of people suffering violence, rough to watch. Another solution is let's expose millions of people to football players and and college football players who feel this is a really big problem and get all of them to think about it differently. An effort that was tried right. And if we're if we're reaching 100 million people who look at football every month. Um, during certain times of the year, is that a solution? Is that the right scale? Clearly, that's an, Kaepernick was an MVP that was testing that. Ending homelessness, they've chosen 40 cities to try to go to zero homelessness, and they're now trying it at that scale as well. But what, what you find when you think about it, what you're doing and you're learning is not just testing your ideas, but you're testing how your ideas will grow. Um, and as part of that testing, you're learning the things that accelerate adoption for your ideas, that accelerate the speed at which you can make a difference. Uh, I'm gonna stop again and see if there are questions yet. We have about six more slides, so we're close to the end. Nothing yet. All right, I don't, I, we're not dropping off though, the numbers are good, so thanks. Hi all 33 of you, thank you for sticking with it. All right, so how, how does this work? So I, Basically, the, first, the last two slides have really covered just the solution, right? What's the value proposition, how much can it grow? But there are many other dimensions to whether your solution, your product, your idea will work. They're captured in something called the Lean Canvas. Um, and it's available in my book, it's available to someone online for the social sector. And really you can think of all of the, these nine boxes generally will help you describe almost anything you're trying to do. Um, and you start really by filling this out like you'd fill out a paper napkin. You put your guesses as to what's gonna be true about your project in each of these boxes. You start in the middle. You typically work clockwise from value proposition. The two most important boxes are the value propositions and the targets. You don't try to solve all these at once. You want to be sure you know what your value prop is. You want to be sure you know who your targets are. Then it does tend to be that your relationships and the pathways or channels that you reach people are very important. Uh, You might want to start thinking about revenue and expense as you get a little deeper in. And then you start really modeling what are the activities, the resources, the partners. The activities can change really radically. An example I use in my book is Title IX activism on campuses, which was started by a series of blog posts at a Northeastern university by a woman who'd been date raped um, and morphed into an organization that's the premier Title IX advocacy organization in the country. They didn't start with, hey, let's have a policy arm, they started with, let's tell stories on a blog about um, sexual assault, um, and that morphed into what, what is a powerful organization that has a completely different set of key activities now. Um, so they kind of worked their way around that chart in a way that led them to the most effective type of action eventually. But what you want to understand is that every component of your organization, of your solution, eventually should be based on a hypothesis, on a test you ran. You start by seeing if you have a solution, but eventually you may test different kinds of activities, different kinds of partners, and and really come at it, not from a waterfall perspective, or from a perspective of, if I make this choice, what will the impact be? Let's go test that as fast as we can at every stage of our growth, and moving forward as we mature as well. Um, The key instrument in that kind of testing is called a minimum viable product. If you're on this webinar, you've probably heard that term. what I, what my favorite way to describe that is, um, the smallest thing you can do/slash make to learn what you need to learn. It's a tool for answering a specific question, um, and people often say, "Well, that's not really the solution. That's just a set of questions you're answering or you're building a task." But I'll give an, you know, I'll, I'll give an example. Of, um, you know, uh, for example, if you let me just try to think of a quick one. Um, let's. I worked on a workshop. People were trying to build a microgrid for. Uh, Harlem, right, in case of weather disturbance, and also to build an alternative energy system in Harlem, New York. Um, And they turned out the most critical, most near-term thing they had to know was, was it legal? Could you actually, were you allowed to implement a microgrid in a city like New York City? Um, And you think, okay, the MVP is really simple. Let's just go ask the decision makers, the power regulators in New York, whether we can do that. You think, well, that's not really a product, is it? Um, It's just an interview you're just answering some questions, but treating it like a product allows you to treat it as a rigorous step in The development of the bigger unit that you're building the overall project that you're building But it is actually a product also right think about what happens after you Conducted that interview and you've had an approval from the regulators. They say yeah Thanks for talking to us. I know you don't have anything to show us yet, but we would approve the right kind of microgrid for Harlem Um, That's kind of a product actually right if you know if you've got it locked in a can that it's possible to legally do this, that's a component of your product. You don't have the permit yet, but you have a pretty good test of whether you can get a permit. Um, So never underestimate just the power of even conversations, of talking to your targets, of talking to the people you want to impact, and the importance of that in building what you're trying to build ultimately, even if you take small steps along the way. Um, The overall process of customer development, I'm starting to run out of time, but you can find this in my book, um, discovery, uh, uh, validation, scaling, and movement building. Um, I'm not gonna spend a lot of time on, on this, but this is, you know, a lot of what you're doing, the whole canvas is used really in the first two boxes, and the last two are really some different steps you take once you wanna grow. I wanna talk a little bit about how we get institutional. You know, what, what we do, I'm sorry, let me just talk a little bit about what qualifies as an MVP. Um, um, just a second. Um, So there are lots of types of MVPs, you can Google it, There are endless creative MVPs. Um, I'm not gonna go into all the details here, but um, you you really wanna find a way to feel um, as if the product already existed, to test behavior by your targets um, uh, in a way that's as real as possible. So one of your targets is often funders. Um, And no, maybe you can't figure out if you're gonna get a million dollar check in six months. But you can figure out how long it takes them to return your phone call based on your idea. You can send out memos or emails and see how responsive they are. So your first MVP might not be, did we get a check? It might be, we are gonna hypothesize that this is such a good idea that funders will meet with us within a month. Okay, let's go ask six of them. Oh shoot, none of them wanna meet with us. Gosh, the odds of getting a million dollar check seem a lot smaller. Or, yeah, they met with us right away, looks good, looks like we could take the next step and eventually Iterate our way towards a proposal that they will fund. But there's all kinds of fabulous ways of testing this stuff. Facebook offers a huge amount of them if you use it right. And LinkedIn, Twitter, all those folks have all kinds of ways of engaging large numbers of people with propositions that feel very real, um, and and ways that you know, short of the final product, simulate people's interest and excitement about what you're trying to do. Um, the key MVP never be discouraged is just listening. Get out of the building and talk to the people whose lives you want to change. Stop talking to each other. Stop talking to your allies. Stop talking to your partners. Go talk to the people you want to work with. Go talk to your targets in a designed and intentional way and listen to the data they give you. Um, so let me talk a little bit at the institutional level, and I'll wrap up. Um, at, once you get into bigger organizations, um, you know, um, you kind of move into – yeah, this this kind of process can go from being for a particular small piece of innovation can be incorporated into the life cycle of very big organizations. Um, on you know the core portfolio of an organization is often called the execution arm, where they have business models that they move through that become a big part of their revenue or their impact, depending on whether it's social sector or private sector, but it's important for organizations to have an exploration or an innovation portfolio that they're introducing ideas in, ejecting them, or moving them to maturity so they eventually become part of the execution engine, part of the core business or core business model or change model of the organization. So they're really increasingly conceptual models for how this kind of small-scale incremental innovation can be used in big organizations to scale and keep an organization healthy and vital. Um, There are also a lot of tools like innovation accounting, which is really, in some sense, the holy grail. You want to get to the point where you're in an organization that's really testing, let's say, five or six things at once, um, and that you're measuring the rate at which you test. And ultimately, the way the software companies grow fast and the world's most innovative companies grow fast, and increasing the world's most innovative social change actors grow fast, is they don't just test their hypotheses, they actually measure how fast they're learning because using a rigorous system like Lean really forces you to rigorously say, well, how long, you know, we wanted to open a summer program in six cities. We wanted to open a summer program in one city. It took us six months the first time. Now we want to go to six cities. um, And what did we learn through these experiments about what some of the critical things were? How long did it take us to run the experiment, let's say, that involved recruiting teachers in Chicago? Okay, we did that in four months last year. Look at our experiments, look at how we design the recruitment process. Can we do it in two months? Can we stand up a new program faster? By making learning rigorous and structured in this way, you can accelerate the speed at which you can innovate. Best example, I know this is unfortunately still in the private sector, Intuit, for example, changed its, um, Intuit would it develop a new business, and it used to take about three years for a new business idea. If a new business idea was going to be successful, and by success, that means it would generate $50 million a year in revenue. It typically took three years to understand whether a new business at Intuit would make it to $50 million. Over the, period, over the last decade, ending about five years ago, they got to this point, they reduced that time horizon to six months. Today at Intuit, they know whether a business is going to hit $50 million a year in six months, down from three years. Think about how much of a competitive advantage it gives them to know how to prototype and run a new business. That also can be true for social change work, that we learn about learning itself and that we change the curve that we're learning on so that learning happens faster, growth happens faster, impact happens faster and bigger. I think that's my last slide for this show, so I have a few minutes to take questions. I may be interrupted, but let me just uh, open it up, thanks.
1: Michael, I just want to say thanks so much. This is uh, Jason Green from Portland State University, one of the co-hosts here. I want to say um, that is the best description of an MVP I've heard. and I've been teaching courses at Lean Startups for Social Innovation for years. I love the way you put that. The smallest thing you can do or make to learn what you need to learn, a tool for answering a specific question. and That actually gets around a lot of the hang-ups my students have around an MVP. They're like, I can't build an app right away or I can't even build a mock-up. You know, and I love the way you put that, where it's just you've got that hypothesis, you just are going to test it in the easiest, fastest way possible. Yeah,
0: yeah.
1: Well, we don't see
0: any questions right now, Michael, um, but I see you've got um, your contact information on there, if they have questions. Yeah. I'll be sending out a link to the webinar, and then we'll resend out the, your contact information if someone does want to follow up with you. But again, I also want to really thank you for your time and for sharing.
2: Well, my pleasure. Um, and you know, I hope I can make it up there sometime soon uh, um, to chat with you all in person. There are basically training techniques about how to do MVPs that we didn't really, you know, obviously I didn't go into today, but um, in about 90 minutes I can get you started pretty well, usually.
0: Yeah, we talked about maybe a live workshop where people could practice some techniques like that. So. If people are interested in that, let us know, and we can try to schedule something maybe later
1: this year. Okay. Thanks a lot. lot. Okay. Thank Thank you, everybody, for joining, and
0: we'll talk to you soon.